before the neighbors start stomping around again upstairs. What's going on, y'all? CA here, and I want to let you in on a little secret before this episode. If you ever wondered how I got so many interviews from folks all across the U.S. so easily, it's mostly thanks to Zencaster. Zencaster is an all-in-one online podcasting platform that allows you to record your guests at high-quality MP3 or WAV files on separate tracks to make your podcast editing streamlined and easy. And now, if you haven't guessed it already, a lot of thought is proud to be hosted on Zencaster's brand new creator platform, which means if you all need to do any remote recording for your own podcast, I got the goods, and there they are. I got the goods to help you get started with Zencaster today. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code Thought, no spaces. You'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. Zencaster, it's time to share your story. <clears throat> All right, add over and let's get to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. As the saying Thank goes, you. hindsight is 2020. I'm the son of a black man from Kenya and a white woman from Kansas. Delivered in 2008, this speech, A More Perfect Union, and the last great leader of the United States ushered in eight years of a false sense of progress. In South Carolina, where the Confederate flag still flies, we built a powerful coalition of African Americans and white Americans. We saw how I used to think American that Barack Obama was the first American politician who represented me, an iconic figure, the president who grew up a mixed boy in a black and white world. Definitely not white, but also not really black. Somehow, maybe as talk show hosts seem to think, outside the binary entirely. But that was never true. I have brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, uncles, and cousins of every race and every hue scattered across three continents. And for as long as I live... Obama didn't grow up in a black and white world. He was born and raised in Hawaii, the only majority multiracial state in the U.S., and for five years in Indonesia a multicultural Asian archipelago with more than 600 ethnic groups living amidst the islands. I will never forget that in no other country on earth is my story even possible. That in no other country on earth is my story even possible. Is my story even possible? Is my story even possible? Obama became the most magnetic politician that this country has birthed. His mixed-race body was used by the Democratic Party to create unity and by the Republican Party to sow fears of a non-white communist agenda. By the end of his presidency, American politics seemed more polarized than ever. We begin tonight with that breaking news, a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. You also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Excuse me. Why did people think President Obama was some newfound, racially ambiguous hero when, quite literally, countless folks were and are mixed in America? Come to think of it, who were the first mixed race people in America? Well, let's take it back. 
take a way, way back to the first black man. Long ago before the white man compared the black man with a gun in his hand. And find out. My name is C.A. Davis, and this is A Lot of Thought. I don't know about you, but website design seems like a lot of fun. Until you have to code and actually make the cool images in your head come to life on screen. That's why I called Techie Camel. If you need your website to do a little bit more than the prefab options out there, but you really don't know where to begin, go to techiecamel.com. That's T-E-C-H-Y-C-A-M-E-L.com. That's what I did, and you know, I haven't looked back since. All right, back to the show. Your family, said almost every teacher I had throughout high school, is the most representative of the American ideal. Your family is, brace yourselves, the melting pot of America. So, I won't lie, I ate this up. I loved it. I was unique, different, the future. Right? I mean, that was the ideal of what America wanted to be. Uh, supposedly. Some very, very good friends of mine were killed by bombs. Bombs that were planted by racists. We could have a very hostile and strange neighbor on our border. In every place in this country are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. They have been raising money for terrorists, and I want it to stop. A father and son have been charged with murder for the shooting death of an unarmed man, Ahmaud Arbery, while he was on a jog in Georgia. Class basically just started. One of the girls said all Chinese people were disgusting. It's a story that hasn't made me the most conventional of candidates. But it is a story that has seared into my genetic makeup the idea that this nation is more than the sum of its parts. That out of many, we are truly one. Obama inspired many Americans to re-envision politics in a unifying way. And so, some people thought we could also see each other in a more unified way, no matter what we looked like. We could finally see each other's character as human, as the same. But Obama and his mixed-race body did not and does not represent the future. I mean, we're in the future of his presidency right now, and... But you don't hear them talking about COVID, Kung Flu. And many people saw that tweet as racist and that uh, white nationalist groups are finding common cause with you on that point. It doesn't concern me because many people agree with me. And all I'm saying... Seems to be the complete opposite of what folks are hoping for. And yet, a lot of folks, definitely including myself, did once believe, and maybe still do believe, that the mixed-race body is an emerging race of its own. One that could maybe save America from its own racist roots. But how true is that? 
who were the first mixed-race people in America? Right. Um, so this question goes to the heart of what constitutes America to begin with. That is Guy Emerson Mount. Assistant Professor of African American History at Auburn University. Jamestown, 1619. For many Americans, they're going to kind of wrongly assume this is the first moment that enslaved peoples are in what is considered America. If you look back, you have an entirely different starting point of America's empire. Long before Jamestown, long before Plymouth Rock, the idea of being mixed was hard-baked into the New World almost from the jump. Of course, if you begin in the Caribbean, if you start with Spanish colonies, let's say what would eventually become California, and certainly Puerto Rico, you know, early, early 1500s. That mulatto formulation would start to be used in a place like Puerto Rico. So it's as old as the New World itself. Mulatto. The term denoting a person of African-European ancestry is a long-since antiquated Portuguese word whose original meaning in English was either hybrid or mule, depending on which etymology you're following. This term and the concept of race itself, denoted by the very idea of mixing races, was a long evolution over time as the Spanish, Portuguese, English, and French monarchies extended their grips into the Americas. In Spain, people were very concerned about their ancestry. Because you had the Moors who would reign so long people who were Jewish were viewed as outside the community. I am Tanya Lavelle Banks, and I'm the Jacob A. France Professor of Law at the Cary School of Law at the University of Maryland. Christopher Columbus and Hernando Cortez initiated the Spanish crown's reach into the New World. And so Spaniards bring with them to Mexico notions of sort of uh, of what we today would call race, of racing people and categorizing people. When the English arrived, they followed the conquistadors' blueprint when forming their own colonies. A large part of that blueprint was an increasingly visual system of dividing people into roles of the elite, middle, and laboring classes. So you have in Mexico mixtures of white Europeans, enslaved and free people of African ancestry, and Native Americans who were themselves divided into categories. 
some native communities were ranked higher on the scale than others. And this racial hierarchy was enforced not only through law, but also for a largely illiterate population. I don't know about you, but if you're like me, and you also fell for the 23andMe ads, if you've seen an ancestry report, then you know how complex it is to trace one's lineage. So, in the 1700s, to make that complexity legible to everybody, especially those who could not read, the Crown had to produce... Pictures. Pictures of the caste. Several levels of all different kinds of mixtures of people and naming of people. And some of those pictures still survive today. All right, I'm looking at one of the pictures of the caste. Uh, these are actually paintings. And there's about, let's see, one, two, three, there's... 16 boxes of varying phenotypes and cultural attire. The men up until around box, looks like box five, are all white or at least uh, very, very light-skinned. But the women, interestingly enough, some seem to be Native South American, Native African, but they seem to be accompanying the men who are the elite class. Looks like he's got gold adorning his robe. And as you go down the rows, the skin tones all start to become darker. You have different configurations of who's in these boxes. And now this hierarchy didn't really include anyone of Asian descent. The interactions between Western monarchies and Eastern empires up until the 18th century stretched over thousands of miles of desertous trade routes, the Silk Road. And so, there were very few migrants making their way from the Asian continent into the American and Caribbean colonies. That is exactly why we don't really hear about laws racializing people from the Asian diaspora until around the mid-1800s. The New World hadn't yet acquired wage laborers from China or Japan or the Philippines. Instead, the focus of the Spanish, English, Portuguese, and French colonies was to steal resources from the indigenous nations already residing throughout the Americas, and then export those goods back to consumers in Europe and other emerging colonies on the West African coast. This was a massive, massive undertaking, one that created an overwhelming demand for labor. A component of colonization is the exploitation of labor for the enrichment of the people who are in control. And I, and I should say for the rich men who are in control. Wealth was acquired in the Americas through the labor of people and the unpaid labor of a lot of people. And as demand for unpaid labor skyrocketed alongside profit, so too did the stealing and selling of indigenous people into slavery. A system that wasn't yet racialized, it was kind of still in flux. At a certain point, slavery very quickly became central to the production of everything that was happening in the New World. 
Once Caribbean slavery took off, and that was kind of working, North America tried to make the thing go with indigenous slavery. And in order to kind of remove people further, colonies in the North would effectively ship down enslaved indigenous peoples and then ship up enslaved African, and by that time, Afro-Caribbean peoples back up to North America. The economization of enslaved indigenous American and African people took advantage of what historians call old world slavery, a system that violently assimilated captured members of a defeated tribe into the victorious tribe. A little side note here, Ya Jesse's novel Homegoing is an incredible historical fiction depicting this exact dynamic. You win a war, you would take survivors that you had conquered. They would be enslaved for the rest of their lives, but there was an expectation that their children would be free and would kind of be part of your tribal group, family group, language group. But the new European slave trade treated their captives as fungible, interchangeable units of labor. And their children, in most cases, were considered no more than the children of laboring livestock. Yet, even so, race was not preconceived in that process of acquiring free labor. But ancestry was. How you look, your skin tone, your hair, your facial features. And although phenotype was associated with ancestry, it wasn't quite the categorical assignments of Negro, mulatto, or white. It's the racism that happens first, the exploitation that happens first, and then these categories come in in order to justify and harden those divisions. And those hierarchical categories made it seem as if the enslaved were less worthy of being paid. And in many ways, treating them as less than human. Racism begat race. And born from those solidified categories were children whose race was in legal question. Race is key in determining whether you're in a particular club or you're not in a particular club. And it became murky when that ancestry blended or mixed. And one mixed-race woman's murky classification caused a white lash, which set the legal impetus for designating the children of enslaved parents as chattel in perpetuity. You'll hear all about that right after this short break. So this is a brand new, independently produced show, which means there's opportunity for sponsors. If you're a business looking to support discussions on race, social justice, and racial consciousness, then, I mean, this, this, is, this is the podcast for you. Do me a favor, go to alatothought.com, that's L-A-T-T-O-T-H-O-U-G-H-T, and fill out the contact form for sponsorship opportunities. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the show.
Hey, hey, welcome back. Um, despite what you're thinking, those paparazzi are not for me. But thank you for thinking I'm popular. No, no, no. On November 27th, 2017, Henry Charles Albert David, a.k.a. Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, or is it ex-Duke now? I actually, I, I can't keep track. And Meghan Markle, a biracial, to use her words, American actress, announced their engagement to get married. And tell us, how did you propose? Was it romantic? And of course, the world blew up. Because nobody seemed to be able to agree on how black or not black Megan is. I didn't view it as a win for us black girls. At least the royal family, they'll experience more of the black culture. Do you know what I'm saying? I just think that the whole thing is a joke. Mm -hmm. And I think like, if I'm not mistaken, she identifies as like biracial. Yeah. She doesn't even like say like, I'm a black woman. Mm -hmm. So if she's not doing that, then why should anybody else do that for her? I don't get that. You might be wondering, why are we talking about the ex-Duchess of Sussex right now? Man, that is a mouthful. I thought we were talking about America and the colonies that preceded it. Well, when Meghan entered and then brexited, <laughs> the royal family, the way the world racialized her, and now like this half-breed that's in the uh, office with them that's not even gonna claim herself as black. Your premise is this is all driven by racism, that Britain's basically a racist country and the media's been racist, to which I say, on behalf of the media, where is that racism? I haven't seen it. When I look at Megan, she looks like a quadroon to me, which means she looks to be a fourth black. A lot of people are saying, you know, her mom is black. <sighs> It directly calls back to the way that the English colonists categorized children born from coerced sexual relationships between enslaved women and free white Englishmen all the way back into the 17th century. The hypo descent rule applied to any known African ancestry. Didn't matter how you looked, how you identified. If you had known African ancestry, you were considered both socially and legally not white. The slave trade racialized the labor force based off a of phenotype, creating what they called Negroes. But the white English men weren't always free themselves. Many Englishmen who came to the colonies were actually indentured servants, but those who owned slaves, or eventually did own slaves, became wealthy enough to do so, which means that they probably paid taxes to the crown. The wealth, then, of free Englishmen was, in a sense, a commodity of the crowns. The payment of those taxes was one way that the king stayed rich. Now, when English men, specifically men, had children that could be proven to be their children, what was called the Law of Primogeniture stated that the firstborn son was automatically heir to the father's estate after death. And, here's the kicker, any children born of a free English man were themselves considered free English subjects, no matter where they were conceived or where they were born. At that time, you had a lot of children being born outside of marriage. 
you had laws being passed about who would be responsible for the support of those children. I mean, it was a colony full of very young people who were, you know, highly sexually active. In England, there were all kinds of ways of men trying to control women so that they could make sure that any children born were their children, which is one reason that you had women wear chastity belts. Women and the children of men were considered property. So what was to happen if, over time, the children of free, wealthy white men and racialized enslaved women began to overtake the population of their forefathers, kind of like it did in the Spanish-Caribbean colonies? Well, the Crown couldn't have children of the enslaved becoming free after birth, right? Kind of screws up the whole free labor economy. But that is exactly what Elizabeth Key threatened to disrupt in the Virginian Commonwealth in 1655, when she sued for her and her son's freedom. Elizabeth was claiming it because her father was an Englishman by birth and she was born to him. She was therefore born free and if she were in any kind of servitude, it could only be indentiture and not slavery. The story is rather complicated. She was born as a result of an illicit relationship between her father. Whose name was Thomas Key. He was a wealthy plantation owner and slaveholder in Warwick County, Virginia. And to what is called his Negro servant. It's assumed from the record that she was probably an enslaved black woman. Thomas was charged and taken to court for refusing that he fathered Elizabeth out of wedlock. Eyewitness testimony sealed the verdict, and Thomas was ultimately held accountable for Elizabeth's well-being, as was the social and legal custom of England at the time. So, Thomas takes Elizabeth in, baptizes her, but when she turns six, she's sent away to be under the care of Humphrey Higginson, her so-called godfather, under a nine-year contract of indenture. In order to support Elizabeth, her father gave her to her godfather as an indentured servant for a short period of time with the promise to set her free and to treat her well. So that was how he maintained his obligation to support his child. Unfortunately, Elizabeth's father dies before she reached the, the end of her term. And her godfather, so-called godfather, decides to go back to England. And he then sells Elizabeth off. And she is, you know, traded away and finds herself enslaved. Elizabeth then finds herself under the ownership of John Motram, who founded Northumberland County in Virginia. Later, in a bid to increase town development, Motram pays for 20 white indentured servants to come to his plantation and essentially start new lives in his new town. 
And by chance, one of those indentured servants was a lawyer whose name was John Grinstead. Motram then uses Grinstead as his attorney until Motram died around 1655. But before then, John and Elizabeth meet. They begin a consensual romance, unbeknownst to Motram, and, of course, not long after, Elizabeth births their own son, who they named, as if this story isn't confusing already, John. Literally, everyone's named John. Okay, still with me? Cool. So, when Motram dies... Elizabeth and her son were listed among the Negroes. The assumption was that she and her son were enslaved for life. But Elizabeth, with the aid of her son's father, sued for her freedom and for her son's freedom. Elizabeth Key, the legitimate daughter of a free white Englishman and an erased, enslaved black woman, finds herself, at the age of 20, and her son, categorized by overseers of a wealthy white man's estate as nothing more than chattel slaves. But Grinstead, being a lawyer and romantically linked with Elizabeth, decides to represent her in her legal battle for freedom. And... They win. Elizabeth is freed on the grounds that she was always free in the first place, being the legitimate daughter of a free white Englishman. She then legally marries Grinstead, and they live happily ever after. Um, well, well, not really. I mean, the law that was passed shortly after Elizabeth's successful case is directly correlated to the enslavement of black women and their children. Yeah. Well, more specifically, it caused an anti-precedent of English law. The Virginian colony became so worried that such a loophole could destabilize the colony's control over the labor force that Virginia created a new law directly in opposition to the English law of primogeniture. The gravamen of her complaint was that she could not be enslaved because her father was a free Englishman. But because of her success, shortly thereafter, a law is passed which says the status of the child fathers that of the mother. This became the formalized definition of hereditary slavery. The law of hypodescent. The legal definition that any child born from an enslaved mother was thus born enslaved came directly after Elizabeth's quest for her and her son's own freedom, which, by the way, was only possible because of Elizabeth's white English lawyer husband. <sighs> Sexism and the deliberate controlling of women's bodies, especially black women's bodies, combined with the social construct of hereditary race, 
ended up binding people into a system of never-ending slavery. They could have their way with enslaved women and at the same time perhaps increase the ownership of the number of slaves. They could have their cake and eat it too. Pretty pragmatic and, and terrible. When you ask the question, who were the first mixed-race people in America, you get a peek, just a little peek, into Pandora's box. The question is not really asking about mixed-race people. What it is asking about is what race is, which is a happening, a... A political and social process. And it was this process of labor, resource extraction, and legislation that created the illusion of race. Wherever race existed, so too did the magnetic force fields between them, pushing the enslaved together and pulling apart free subjects through wealth, sexual abuse, and law. While Elizabeth Key did get her freedom, the Virginian colony created a new legal precedent ensuring that hundreds of thousands of others would never be so lucky. But what if we take it back even further? Before race was a solidified legal construct used to enforce the brutal system of chattel slavery. We'll hear that story right after this short break. quick shout out to APM Music, home to almost 900,000 music tracks. Much of this episode is scored with APM's cinematic music that is known worldwide in film and television alike. Big, big thanks to APM, for real. Also, thank you to Makaya McRaven, Big Dog Little Dog, and New Amsterdam Records for their generosity in letting me use just a couple of their songs for this episode. The theme for this episode comes from Blessed Track's instrumental recreation of Logic's song, Take It Back. And speaking of taking it back, let's get back to the show. There's, of course, a whole nother genealogy from Thomas Holt's book, Children of Fire. The story of when America starts and the idea of being mixed race begins actually back in Africa. That's Guy Emerson Mount again, taking us home. Middlemen were the descendants of usually elite African women and elite white male who would soon become slaveholders. They were translators. 
far beyond just language, doing intellectual translations, cultural translations, for better or for worse. I mean, if you're talking about the transatlantic slave trade, obviously this is for worse. Like most colonial formations, what you have is you have these ruling elites that oftentimes help facilitate empire. Elite mixed-race people in Africa help facilitate the extraction of people and resources from Africa with European colonial forces in the name of profit. Visual indications of belonging have always been a part of human society. Whether it's in socially ascribed ornaments of clothing or tattoos or hairstyles, piercings, there have always been quick ways for a person to indicate that I belong here with you. Race, however, was never a process of social belonging, at least not in its formation. It was, and in many ways, still remains a process of power used to divide people, extract labor, and profit off of the backs of those who are racialized. And so a lot of those middlemen are not going to come to America. A lot of those middlemen are going to escape enslavement in many ways uh, because of their status as mixed-race people. They're going to remain on the coast in Africa, start to facilitate this process as a, as a colonial elite. But sexual relations between European men, for the most part, and African women would start on the west coast of Africa and continue first in the Caribbean and then Latin America and eventually North America. So you had mixed race people even before you had America. Mixed race bodies were an unavoidable discrepancy in the white European man's imperial conquest of the world. They were used by white slaveholders to have their cake and eat it too, to sexually abuse a legally enslaved underclass and take their children born of that rape and feed them back into a racialized, labor force. But as for race itself, it was, and it is, a vapor, a non-reality. It is the lie that became real. But if that's the case, then why do a lot of people still believe it's embedded within our DNA? Well, you'll just have to find that out next time. This has been a lot of thought. I'm C.A. Davis. I'll talk to you all soon. This episode of A Lot of Thought was made possible by Lex Ward, Michelle N. Huang, Rode Microphone's My Roadcast Competition, and APM Music. The sound effects of the show are provided by freesound.org and the many, many talented independent Foley artists 
who have generously put their tracks up on free sound through the Creative Commons license. And those Foley artists are credited on the podcast page on our website. Today's guests were Guy Emerson Mount of Auburn University and Tanya Lavelle Banks of the University of Maryland. This episode's music was provided by APM Music, New Amsterdam Records, Makaya McRaven, Big Dog Little Dog, Blue Dot Sessions, and Blessed Tracks. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. So thank you all so much for listening to this first episode of a Lotto Thought Podcast. One last thing, uh, since you're still here, don't forget to go to lottothought.com. That is L-A-T-T-O-T-H-O-U-G-H-T.com and subscribe. Follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And throw up a five-star rating, please, and share with your friends. Feel free to hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Oh, and also, if you like what you hear, feel free to reach out to lottothought at gmail.com for a chance to be featured on the Talkback page and on Instagram. All right, y'all. Till next time, be well. I am out. <laughs>